Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Shift, hosted by Alex Price and, of course, sponsored by Anchor Podcasting and Weed Maps. Uh, today on the podcast, we will be joined by NBA champion, NCAA uh, fucking all-around badass, current real estate guru, former Survivor cast member, Scott Pollard is joining us. He won a ring. He was on TV in both the NBA, college basketball, and on Survivor. And now he is fucking kicking dicks in when it comes to real estate with his wife, Dawn. So I'm interviewing him today. Uh, but until we get into that episode, I do have some great shows coming up. Uh, I will be, of course, at the Columbus Funny Bone uh, this November, November 18th and 19th. I will be there. Uh, with Noel Miller, which will be super fun. Also, uh, before that, on this, this October, I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, as a part of the uh, 10,000 Laughs Comedy Festival. Uh, super excited about that one. I believe that's the 7th, 8th, and 9th, uh, maybe 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th, something like that. Uh, so check out 10klaughs.com. See if you can grab some show tickets to that. There are so many great comics, so many great shows there. And then, of course, I will be in Pittsburgh hanging out with some Yinzers. Uh, looks like I will be there December 9th, 10th, and 11th hanging out with my good friends Dave Attell and Ian Fidens. So they're going to be great shows. Grab some tickets. Come enjoy some goof-em-ups. Um, but until then, enjoy this episode of the podcast, and remember, follow your dreams, fucko. I love you. Everybody and welcome to another episode of The Shift, uh, a podcast where it helps you figure out when to bet on yourself and follow your dreams. I am your host, Alex Price, and today we are joined by uh, Tall Homie, uh, NBA champion, um, and all-around funny good guy. Let's give it up for Scott Pollard, everybody. Hey, it's me. Scott, what is up? How are you today? I'm doing great. You know, I'm doing uh, suburb dad stuff, uh, mm -hmm. you know, raising kids, uh, married, and working like a champion on weekends. Yeah. I'm a realtor now, you know. So, uh, you know, there's it's, it's a kind of a joke among the Survivor alumni. I've been on the TV show Survivor, and apparently a lot of them, after they be go, go on the show, become realtors. And I didn't know this yeah. until I became a realtor, and all the people on our private Facebook group were like, oh, great, another realtor and Survivor <laughs> family. I'm like, oh, I didn't know it was a thing. Uh, but apparently people try to capitalize on the fame that they got uh, from Survivor. I did not. I, I did not. No one has ever picked me as a realtor because of my former career uh, or Survivor. So 
um, it's been a fun career, and and we can get into that more. Yeah, but yeah. It's uh, just doing suburb dad stuff. Uh, how many how many people uh, from Survivor from Indianapolis? I know of at least is you um, and there's Rupert. He's Rupert. the most famous one. Um, and then uh, there there's been a couple of people that I think were early boot. I couldn't name them, but that were from Indiana okay. somewhere. Um, and then there was another. There was a girl. Uh, she kind of claimed Indiana, but I think she's also Kentucky okay. girl. And so, uh, again, her, her name escapes me right now. But that we, Jefferson, Louisville area. Yeah, probably. we had an interaction after she was on because she was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be in Indianapolis. And we were going to get get together and just kind of talk Survivor. But we, and then it ended up working out. But, um, yeah, just uh, Rupert, the famous one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's uh, used to be the cook at Crackers. Yeah. Yeah. He's done a lot of jobs. Yeah. Went for governor. Interesting. Libertarian, right? Yeah, Yeah. libertarian. Mm -hmm. Went for governor, uh, did not win, obviously. But, um, yeah, he's an interesting dude. We've done a couple charity events together, uh, and he's he's fun to be around. He's a good person. Yeah. Uh, You originally grew up in Utah? Utah, then San Diego. Okay. Uh, I was born in Utah. Like, if you go to Utah, you're probably going to run into a family member. Mm -hmm. I'm related to almost everyone in Utah. Uh, my dad is in the state of Utah Hall of Fame, so if they haven't heard of a Pollard because we're related, it, they've heard of my dad. He was really famous, especially for an older generation than mine. Right. Um, but I played my whole time, I, every time I went to the NBA, uh, play the jazz in Utah, there wouldn't be a time where I'd go out and somebody wouldn't be like, oh, man, I remember watching your dad play. Like, mm-hmm. I never got out of his shadow. And he never played in the NBA, but he was he was just such a star in, in high school and college that, that – he left an incredible mark and he was one of like the first big people right that existed like he was 6'9 in 1955 when he graduated high school which was quite an anomaly in those days yes i mean uh, people still don't handle it well so yeah. back then that would be <laughs> yeah it, it, and, and my mom's 6'2 so they, okay. they were like the, the tallest couple in the in the state they won an award they gave him like a fur coat or something my mom a fur coat and but they gave an award for just being tall? Just tall. They were like, you're the tallest couple in the state. They recognized them. They were, I've seen the article. It was in my mom and dad's scrapbooks. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was, it's funny. But anyway, yeah. Then, like, my dad lost everything, and we moved to San Diego. And which is really makes a whole lot of sense, Alex. We were the poor people, and we moved to one of the wealthiest cities in the entire world, Del Mar. There's a racetrack there that I never right. went to because I was too young. But, I mean, my high school classmates all... Almost all of them exclusively went to like Ivy League schools or UC Berkeley, like Stanford. They, this is like a wealthy, wealthy area. And I was the poor kid. We were on government assistance for a while. So it, it was quite a, a difference in upbringing going from the Mormon enclave of Utah. My yeah. whole family is Mormon. I'm not, but my whole family is. And I, I went away from the church when I was in high school. But it, like, then all of a sudden we're in Del Mar. Like the poor people moved to Del Mar. I, I still don't know why or how we got from Utah uh, to to Del Mar right. specifically because uh, I uh, as I, far as I remember it was like Phoenix or Vegas or, or San Diego and we ended up not in like no offense but there's other areas of San Diego that are a lot more accessible yeah <laughs> for uh, people that are not wealthy uh, Del Mar is like the least accessible it is like there's a uh, like Barbara Streisand has a house there. Michael Jackson had a house there. Like, okay. Like it's wealthy. Like this, this is the uber wealthy people. A, a friend of mine that his dad had a house right on the beach on 27th street. He sold his house for $34 million about 10 years ago. Like we were at our 20 year high school reunion. I was like, what happened to your dad's house? Cause I wanted to buy that when I was, you know, back when I had money. <laughs> and, 
And he's, he's like, oh, yeah, he sold it. I was like, how much did he get? He goes, about $34 million, I think. I was like, oh. So, yeah, it, it was a weird thing to be the poor kid, Mormon kid, and then all of a sudden I'm just thrust into this wealth where my high school classmates are driving BMWs and Corvettes and Porsches to class. It was a weird upbringing. <laughs> how old were you? Uh, I moved there when I was 11, 12, like okay. going into seventh grade. So it's definitely not a situation where someone like recruited you to be in that high school. Uh, that's possible, actually, because my I'm the youngest of six kids, mm-hmm. uh, and and I have three brothers that are bigger than me, uh, seven feet and up. And my youngest brother, who's five years older than me, was going into his senior year. So okay. I think it was something to do with that. Our high school basketball coach, um, I think he was like, well, there's a seven footer uh, coming, and he's got a little brother that's six two, and he's twelve. I think we we want him in our school district, and and we did do well in basketball. So I think that helped. So you got blindsided. Yeah, I think my mom and dad had something to do with it, and never really told us how we got there. Because again, we there was times like my dad was getting sick. He he had died when I was sixteen, but he was getting sick, and my mom was disabled, always has been, and so there was nobody working to pay the bills. So I don't know how we were living in a in a house. Uh, like we were in a house for a while. And then we moved a couple more times to a smaller house and then finally to an apartment when it was just me and my mom across from the high school. And then I ended up living with friends my junior year. My mom left, went to Utah or uh, Washington to go live with uh, one of my brothers. And I lived with, I couch surfed. I just went from house to house. Whoever would take me in for a while, I was kind of homeless for my junior year. Uh, and then my senior year, she was like, you got to come live here in Washington State. And I was like, no, I don't want to be my friends. But she made me go. And so my senior year, I went to Washington State in the southeast corner in a little uh, place called the Tri-Cities. And I lived in Kennewick and went to Kamiakin High School. And then when basketball was over that season, we had a really good team there. Uh, not, a, not a surprise we ended up in that school district either. Right. <laughs> and at that specific school. Um, but uh, basketball ended and I had turned 18. And so I was like, Mom, you can't stop me anymore. Bye. And so I drove back to San Diego and I got my first job because uh, I had committed to the University of Kansas. And shockingly... Um, I know that was going to be your question. Right. Like, what was my first job? I was, uh, well, I was a paper boy and I did, I helped my mom, uh, take care of infants. We had a little nursery in our house, you know, when, when we could, uh, do things in the house. Uh, I don't think that'd be legal nowadays, but we had seven or eight infants that we used to take care of. And so I was always around little kids. I'd been babysitting my nieces and nephews for many years. So, um, that was kind of my first job, but I'd been a paper boy, but my first real jobby job. Uh, when I went back to San Diego, <clears throat> the owners of this bar were Kansas alumni. And so mm-hmm. they're like, hey, we'll hire you to work at the Kansas City Barbecue. The Kansas City Barbecue is actually an iconic San Diego tourist attraction, which I didn't know at the time until huh. I started working there. It's in the movie Top Gun, where they're playing the piano. Oh. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Right. Do, 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 do. That bar has got Kansas stuff all over it because of the owners. And it was, that was where they filmed that scene. And so that's where I worked. That was my first job was at the Kansas City Barbecue. It's a rib place. Right. Um, And just, I guess it's, I think it's still there. What'd you do Uh, there? I did terribly (laughs) because I was too young to serve drinks. I, I, I managed the, uh, the cash register. Okay. And then they had a Kansas City steakhouse that was over in the gas lamp district. And I would do the books over there and I would input the numbers and I could always tell when I did the cash register at the Kansas City Barbecue because the numbers were way off. I was not good. Like I'd, people would, I'd ring people up and they're like, are you sure that's right? I'm like, 
yeah, it looks right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people <laughs> probably got a lot of free food because of me um, or, or got overcharged because of me because I was not good at the cash register. But um, I did a lot of bar backing and, and, you know, the stuff that was legal for me to do at, at 17, 18 years old. The thought of you as a bar back is just. <laughs> well, mm. I was a stick figure back then. This was Yeah, but you're still tall. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and people would ask me for drinks, and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not old enough. They're like, Yes, you are. Go get me a beverage. You know, like, right. I'm like I'm sorry, I like I can't. Um, How long were you there? Oh, just like a month and a half, two months. Yeah. Then I graduated high school and I went to Kansas uh, and started summer school and lived there, and I never went home. Never went back to San Diego. So Kansas was actually became home uh, for ever. Like until 2017 was was the last time I sold uh, my last thing <laughs> right. in, in in Kansas. Um, and so I, I'd always had an off season home. That was where we went every se- every year when the season ended, wherever I was playing, right. uh, Kansas was home. Uh, we had a house there the whole time until, like I said, 2017 was when and that was, home. is that Topeka? Lawrence. Lawrence, Kansas. That's yeah. right. Lor- and we can, I can go off on Lawrence. Yeah. Well, Lawrence was named after Lawrence, Massachusetts. It was founded by people from Massachusetts who wanted to stop the spread of slavery westward. So that's the history of why Lawrence was founded was to stop slavery because Missouri was a slave state and mm-hmm. there were many battles between Quantrill's raiders would come and burn the city of Lawrence down. Uh, that's why Kansas's colors are crimson and blue. It's because of Harvard and Yale. That's uh, huh. it's it's got a quite a history there in Lawrence. The main drag is is uh, Massachusetts Street uh, for obvious reasons and and uh, but yeah, there's there's a whole history there that's really unique and uh, Lawrence was instrumental in in uh, Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, because unfortunately, white people started dying, uh, and so that was one of like the like kind of the last straw. It was like, right. oh man, this guy's coming from Missouri and just going, are you pro-slavery or anti-slavery? And if they said they were anti, he'd shoot him in the face. And Lincoln heard about that, and it was like, oh, we got to do something. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it's weird it, how white people dying is the catalyst for well, a lot yeah, of right? things. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, those times are not these times, but right. back then, you know, it's like, unfortunately, that that was a bigger deal than say them just lining up slaves or and right. doing horrible things to them. It, all of a sudden it was like, Nope, we're going to kill white people. Uh Oh, now we've got to do something. Right. So interesting city. So you were in Lawrence from what? 94 to 97, 93 to 97. I graduated in 93 high school and then I went straight there um, and graduated in 97. Just a few credits. I had my master's actually all I had to do was do student teaching and I would have had my master's in teaching but, you know, the stupid NDA got in the way of my dreams of teaching high school history. <laughs> I, was, I was planning on being a teacher and making nothing and serving right. my, my youth and mm. helping out little kids and t- telling them, you know, don't believe everything that you, you hear uh, and teaching them about history and, and the real history of the world, not just what they try to teach you in the textbooks. Um, and, but, yeah, the NBA got in the way. Dra- Detroit drafted me in the first round, 19th pick. And dashed my dreams of being a, a penniless teacher. Damn. Yeah. How it, dare they? It was really sad. The nerve. I know. Of I, the I really, Detroit I, Pistons. I almost thought about quitting. Uh, you know, yeah. I was like, you know what? This NBA thing is just uh, the money and the fame and the notoriety and just playing a game for a living. This is all terrible. Yeah. I really should get back into the teaching. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I almost quit many times. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I, I was like, I'm going to play in the NBA. I'm going to okay. play 10 years. And then I'm going to retire. And I did that, actually, after my 10th year was with Cleveland. We went to the finals in 2007. And I was like, I'm never going to win a championship. In high school, both teams, my San Diego and, and uh, my Washington team, we were supposed to win state. We got close, but didn't win. 
Uh, all four years of college, I played in the Sweet 16. One year I was in the Final Eight. We were supposed to win it my senior year. We were the best team maybe ever at Kansas. Four of our starting five were all first-round picks. Two of them were lottery picks. We all played over a decade in the league. So, I mean, it was a stacked team. We had guys coming off the bench that ended up playing in the NBA a little bit. Right. Um, and didn't win it. And then 10 years in the NBA, uh, with the exception of my rookie year with the Pistons, I was in the playoffs every year with every team I was on and never won one. And so I was like, man, I'm, I'm just never going to win a champion. I've always been on winners, but I've never, I'm never going to win a championship. And I retired 10 years. I was like, I'm done. And Boston said, hey, come help us win a championship. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm healthy for the most part. Everything's kind of okay. Uh, I'm, I'm done. I, 10 years is my goal. And they, they made an offer that my now ex-wife and my, my financial advisor could not refuse. They, they really wanted me to go play in Boston. Right. So I went and played in Boston, and I immediately got hurt. And I played hurt until February when my leg finally gave out my left ankle. Uh, a big um, tendon in my left leg snapped, and I was forced to get surgery, which ended my career. But I got a ring. Yeah. <laughs> they can never take that ring away from you, dog. Nope. So I wear yeah. it for all the teams that could have, would have, should have, uh, yeah. that I was more of a part of than, than say, the Boston Celtics. Um, how many N uh, NBA teams did you end up playing for? I played for five. I got paid by six. Uh, interesting story. Uh, after my rookie year, there was a lockout, and then the lockout ended, mm -hmm. and Detroit had decided that I wasn't the first-round pick they had hoped I'd be. And they wanted out of my contract, and the Atlanta Hawks wanted away from C Christian Leitner's contract. So I got traded for Christian Leitner to the Atlanta Hawks. I went there, and I got a uh, physical, and part of the physical, they gave me a flu shot, and I immediately got so sick, I spent a week of the shortened, abbreviated training camp in my hotel room, and I, everything was coming out of both ends. It was brutal. It was one, one of the sickest things I've, I've, times of my entire life. In fact, I don't know if I've ever been that sick. Right. I mean, I couldn't get away from my hotel bedroom. Like, I was just, I, like, they'd call me and check in on me. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, you know, like, I'm on the phone and throwing up. Um, and so they... I missed training camp, basically. And then the first day, they gave me an option. They were like, hey, we can cut you or we can put you on the injured reserve list without an injury. Now, back then, you had to, like, fake an injury to be on the injured reserve list. You say, like, oh, I have a strained right groin or a left hamstring, you know, something that wasn't serious, mm -hmm. but it was so they could keep you on the roster. Now they just have a reserve list. Like, it's 12 active players and three and sometimes even more. I think they can keep more than that now. But anyway, back then, they had that weird rule, and they wanted me to test it. They wanted me to be the guinea pig. So I called my agent. I was like, hey, um, what should I do? He goes, hold on. Tell him to give you some time. And two hours later, he called me and said, there's four teams that want you right now. And he said, I think the best fit would be Sacramento. So I signed to Sacramento, uh, and Atlanta cut me. And they had to pay me the rest of that season and the following season because guaranteed contracts. So wow. I was playing for the Sacramento Kings, but I was getting paid by the Atlanta Hawks and the Sacramento Kings. Uh, my Double second, dipping. Yeah, my second and third year. So that was really cool. Those were good times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, it's the NBA. I mean, I, I signed with Sacramento, and I flew from Atlanta to Philly and met them on an East Coast swing. Had never touched a ball with any of these guys. Was still barely getting my legs back under me from being so sick. And uh, I'm in a Sacramento Kings jersey that night in Philly playing against I Iverson and the Sixers. <laughs> it, it was just it was surreal it was my third team in three weeks that's crazy <laughs> and I was like I don't know if I, maybe I am going to be a teacher like I don't know if this is going to work for me I, maybe I don't belong and so yeah what is that like I mean you have such a I think with comedy like you, you definitely don't know like a lot of times where your next paycheck is coming 
um, you know, because, you know, it's so finicky, you know, if I'm going to get booked, you know, we have a little bit of like lead time on that stuff, but like you have to go out every day and not know whether or not you're going to get traded or cut or you're going to get injured and lose your career. And, and that's the biggest one. You know, I, I didn't know this until many years after I was retired, but there's only been like 4,000 NBA players ever, ever. Like that's in the crazy. history, like that's an incredible number that it's that small to me. Right. You know, you look at other professional sports, there's thousands and thousands. There's probably 4,000 Walmart employees in the Indianapolis yeah. area. <laughs> and so it, it, it is an exclusive club, and, and, but there, there's always somebody trying to take your job. Mm-hmm. I don't care how many years you played or how good you are. There's always somebody that's coming into training camp trying to take your job. And so it is absolutely dog eat dog every training camp and all summer long to your point. You don't know if you're even going to be on the roster, but you've got to put in the hours in the off season of workouts and staying in shape and making sure you're doing everything right. And you're not going out to the clubs and you're not getting a DUI and you're not doing all the partying that everybody else is like, Oh man, it's just party nonstop. It's like, no, it's not. I got to be ready to roll at the drop of a dime and and be able to run with the other 450 best basketball players in the entire planet. Right. At, at any given time there's about 450 and it, it's a lot of the same guys because again there was only 4000 ever. So to play over a decade um is remarkable and that's why our benefits are so great. It goes 3 years, then 7 years, and then 10 is you're, you're fully vested, your pension and your health insurance and all that stuff kicks in at over 10 years because no one makes it. Right. <laughs> they did a numbers game for the NBA and they don't want to have to take care of you for your entire life because you retire at such a young age. I was 33. And so That's crazy. I'm 33 years old and I can't play I can't do what I wanted to do my entire life. My dream was done. I, there was no way my body could do more of what I had trained my entire life and believed in my entire life and gave up everything else in my entire life to do. And I couldn't do it anymore because my body was done. And so right. it, it is a mind uh, game at that point to try to change your mind and not become an alcoholic or, or a drug addict or um, you know a, a abusive person uh, because that outlet is gone. Mm-hmm. It's just gone. You can work out all you want, but you cannot play at that level with that much, uh, I don't know what, what term I would use, but when you're totally invested in being one of the best in the world, it's hard when you're not anymore. Yeah. And that all of that focus and all that energy and all that attention has to go somewhere. And it, that's why a lot of players end up spending their money, uh, you know, getting alcohol problems and, and, uh, it's it's hard. It's really it's a it's a hard transition for a lot of guys. I was very grounded, and it was struggle for me. You know, and, and I luckily didn't have those kind of issues, um, and I always had my, my teaching degree to fall back on if I wanted to. But you know, financially, I was like, that is so much work, and that, that would be good. I'd be a better person if I went back to teaching. Yeah. Uh, but I just couldn't invest the time and the energy into becoming. You know, going back and getting my teaching certificate, finishing my master's, uh, and, and becoming a teacher. And so I just stayed retired for a while and, you know, until I got into realty. And that's, uh, you know, doing stand-up once in a while with you. And, right. uh, you know, the, those are things that I just, I think that that's part of dealing with what I've got left, you know, of the, of the focus and that um, drive that took me to the highest level of basketball. I 
I'm not scared to try something. Yeah. And, and so that's where the, the, it was like, you know, once in a while I'm funny, not, not very often, but <laughs> once in a while I'm funny. And I, and my friend, my, my friend was like, Hey, let's do this charity event. We'll do some stand up And, and we did it. We just did. It was just our stand up. No, prof- well, we had to have some professional comedians at the end, but we just kind of just did this thing, invited all our friends and, and it went out, it went okay. And then all of a sudden Chris Porter came to town. I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had known a lot of the same people cause he went to Kansas too. Uh, but, uh, then he was like, Hey, why don't you open up for my buddy? And I opened up for Dusty Slay and, and, right. you know, so it's, it's been something that it, it's fun. I enjoy it, but man, you guys, it, it's tough to get up yeah. there and read a crowd and make sure that you keep that momentum going, uh, have your routine down, memorizing everything, but, but still being able to go off the cuff with a heckler, right? you know, cause you've got your routine, you've got your minutes and that's, that part was easy for me to remember just to tell some stuff, tell some stories. I'm a storyteller, but then when a fan, when a crowd member is, is heckling you and they didn't really, they don't really heckle me cause I'm no, no one knows that. I'm not a professional and they're just like, whatever, you know, leave them alone um, or whatever. Cause I haven't right. been heckled. <laughs> so, uh, but, but when I see that happen, I've seen you deal with hecklers and, and it's just, to me, that's a gift Yeah, is being able to remember your routine, but also be able to on the cuff, be able to hand, handle somebody right. that, that totally takes you off base. And then you got to get back on where you left off without sounding like an idiot. Right. And that to me is the genius that separates okay comics from the really good ones right i when i don't have to deal with hecklers too much um and a lot of times i'll just ignore like maybe if they're like talking i'll just ignore them because mm-hmm. i always feel like that's you know i'm the one with the microphone why would i give anybody else the power yeah but when it's someone like porter porter is so you can just feel the seething rage yeah in his just sarcasm mm-hmm and man, he just makes people fucking melt and wither when he goes, "Why don't you shut up?" Like you know, just I mean, and he has like famous people. He, he was telling me about the time Kid Rock was heckling him, uh, even though him and Kid Rock are fucking friends. Yeah, like he just be like, "Shut up, Kid Rock." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's a fearless thing to be able to do that, and and I've seen you do it, like I said, and I've seen other people like Chris do that. Where they'll get distracted, but then, you know, manage it, make fun, and then all of a sudden he's just right back into his routine. And that's something I'd, I know I couldn't do. Because once I get distracted by somebody, I know that I would do my best to manage the heckler, whether right. I try to make them feel bad or, or make them look good. I don't, I don't know yeah. how I'd react to it. But if I did, I know I would have to just start my next thing I wouldn't be able to jump back to where I was because I'm I'm not I don't have that kind of memory right and I'm not a professional comedian so right. I, I don't know that but you know it, it it is something that again it goes back to not being scared uh, of of trying because you know when I was a kid learning basketball I would go to all these basketball camps and I'd be first in line and they're like why do you want to be you're always first and I was like yeah because I'm, you know, kind of like Ricky Bobby. I was like, you know, I'm going to be first because I want everybody to know that I'm going to be the first one. And also, I'd go out there and do my best. And if I screwed up, I screwed up in front of the whole camp. Like, everybody's watching me Mm -hmm. go first and screw up and laughing at me or whatever. And that's how I got better. Because I was like, I'm going to be first. I'm going to go out there. And if I screw up, I screw up. And it's going to be embarrassing to screw up in front of the whole camp. But 
that's going to make me better. And it did. It made me better. And so I didn't make those same mistakes again, but I was always wanted to be first. I always wanted to be the first one in sprints. I wasn't always the fastest guy because I'm huge, but right. I was the fastest big guy. Yeah. You know, and those that that translated into why I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's do some stand up. That's fun. Yeah. Let's try it. And if I screw up, I screw up. It, you know, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from the professionals. Yeah. Because you guys are always gracious. Like, hey, man, go ahead if you want to do some minutes. And that's really cool. And the club owners allow it too. And, and I think that's really cool that, that people allow me to do that. But I also don't want to go over time. I don't want to ruin the audience for you. Right. You know, and, and kill a, a, an otherwise good crowd. And so there is that pressure for me if I, whenever I've done it. to That's the thing I'm scared about is screwing up the audience for the professionals. Because I'm like, ah, I don't care if I suck. Uh, this isn't my job, but I don't want to take a good crowd and all of a sudden I'm like terrible. And then you yeah, gotta we got to get out, out of the Scott me. Pollard hole. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks a lot, big guy. You dug me a hole. Now I got to dig out of that before I even get started. Yeah. Um, so that's the pressure I feel when I when I do that. But it's that drive to be great that makes me do it in the first place because I don't want to. I'm not scared to screw up and right. and, and try something. Did you have any, like, so d during the summer, like, when you weren't doing basketball, I mean, I don't really know how this, but, like, did you have a job, or did you, what were you? My job, 365 days a year, was being an NBA player. Right. Um, so. When no, I, I meant, like, in college. Oh, in college? Yeah. We were not allowed to have a job during the season when you're on scholarship, because you're just busy. It's, yeah. It's, it's a full-time job, too. Um, and the summers, I would do basketball camps for uh, the. There's a school called Washburn in Topeka, and Bob Chipman and I became friends. He's the head coach, or was the head coach. He's a legend. He's retired now, but um, he was the head coach of the basketball team there, and he did basketball camps all around the state. Mm -hmm. And so I would jump in his car, or I would jump in my car, and we would drive around to the corners I've seen everywhere in Kansas. Um, I got uh, hoof and mouth disease <laughs> in a place called Yoder, Kansas. Uh, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. So I got I got home. Hoof and camp. mouth disease. It's in Southwest. It's in Yoder, which is right by Sublet. Sublet's yeah. the big city, uh, and it's a lot of Amish people out there in Southwest Kansas. Um, but stayed with a wonderful family, and um, I was you know doing what you do. You're high fiving all the kids, and I get home and my palms are on fire. I've got little red bumps all over my palms. I go to the doctor. I'm like, everything hurts. I think I've got a fever. What is this? And he looks at me, he goes, you've been out on the farm? I was like, no. He goes, you've been around kids that have been on the farm? I go, yeah. I was high-fiving the hell out of him. They go, he goes, you got hoof and mouth disease. And it's from cow shit right. or horse, you know. And the kids are out working the fields and they get it. And, you know, they're probably immune. But I'm high-fiving them at the basketball camp and not knowing it. And I get it. And I go, so what do I do? He goes, wait five days. I was like, that's it? He goes, yeah. I mean, I can give you some medication for symptoms. But he's like, it'll go away. And so that was it. But I've had hoof and mouth disease. And it sounds way worse than it is. That's it's like just, Amish coronavirus. Yeah, it really <laughs> <laughs> But um, so that was, yeah, that was one of them. And I worked at the uh, the country club. Uh, I was the cart wash boy. Okay. And so I, like they, they'd pull in their carts and I'd clean out all of it. And they'd, you know, they would not tip me. Uh, because they were like, oh, you know, I don't want old Roy, my head coach, Roy Williams. I don't want old Roy to get mad at me for paying his players. So you know, I'm like, no, you're just the cheapskate. You can give me a couple bucks, dude. You right. don't have to give me a hundred. But, you know, a couple bucks for washing your car I out. figured that would be like the thing. Like, yeah, like, hey, good job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the most I ever got tipped was $5 out there. And Are I, you fucking kidding me? I worked my ass off. And the, the pro... And I have, are now family friends. Like, I used to babysit his children mm -hmm. uh, when they were little, and they're all in their 30s now. But um, 
I used to be with his girls and we're like, we, we became really close friends. But, uh, at the time, man, there was times where like, there was not much going on. And so I'd be sitting, you know, I was like Caddyshack. I'd just be sitting in the, in the back room ordering food and just sitting there eating. And he's like, the carts are piling up. Like he'd come scream at me. Yeah. There's like four carts sitting out there that are not washed. And I'm like, ah, ah, you know, um, but yeah, that, those were my two jobs. It was cart boy and basketball camp guy. Avoiding the hoof. I was really hoping you were going to give me some juicy story about boosters giving you a shit ton of money. Oh, man. I wish. I I didn't get paid. Now, did I have some teammates that got paid? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. My roommate in college, uh, we were sponsored by Converse. And he always seemed to have money to go buy, and he had a closet full of Nikes, Air Jordans, which are not cheap. Right. And he used to say, oh, it's just, you know, we're on Pell Grant. Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm on Pell Grant. My dad's dead. My mom can't work. Like, I get it. I'm, I'm, I get a federal check. It's a couple hundred bucks a month. And, and it, both his parents were alive, and both of them worked. I was like, I don't think we're getting the same Pell Grant. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm barely making ends meet. I couldn't afford a car. He had a car. Uh, and he, he like, he, we had a, a, a friend that is also a lifelong friend. But he would come over to study, in quotation marks, mm-hmm. and about 20 minutes later, he would leave. And then the next day, my roommate would be like, hey, man, I'm going to go shopping. <laughs> and I, so I think that was, because this this friend's dad, is uh, he's a billionaire. Okay. <laughs> and so I think that was the transfer of the funds there, was he'd come over to study, and then the next day, my, my roommate yeah, would be like, Yeah, I mean, all, go that go all that stuff was happening, like, you yeah. know, I don't... It always has. It always has, and it always, I mean, it's... It's it's weird seeing it change uh, in front of our eyes mm-hmm. that that kids can now uh, rightfully so monetize, and uh, it is fun watching coaches like freak out about it, um, which doesn't at all make Nick Saban look like a slave owner. Oh, I know. Um, it, it's crazy the ones like him that are freaking out because yeah. they're absolutely now not in control of every aspect of the kids' right. lives, and I love it. And yeah. I think that's why some of the coaches in basketball have retired. Because they know they see what's coming, right? Like they're they're gonna lose control. They can't keep them in, you know. And I love it because, like, first of all, if I, if this existed when I was in college, I don't know if I'd have made it to the NBA because I would have made a ton of money. I was very marketable in college. Right. I had crazy hair, and they they sold my jersey like crazy, and I wasn't even the biggest star on the team by a long shot. But my jersey was flying off shelves at, at the local apparel stores, and I didn't get any of that. And I could have done appearances and autograph sessions and all that. It's so crazy. And, like, and you know, you're having to wash fucking golf carts yeah. as they're just making dimes I'm, off you. You know, yeah. the video game. It was EA Sports mm-hmm. College Basketball. And Ed, was it Ed O'Bannon? Yeah. That, uh, Number 31 on Kansas yeah. had blonde hair and sideburns. I'm like, that's me. But right. not. And I didn't get a penny of that. And so Ed O'Bannon started that lawsuit and finally won, what, 25 years later or whatever. But um, You don't get retroactive money for that? I, I wish I could. Uh, right. They said sign up for it, and I did. But pff, I don't think yeah. they're searching out people to give them the money. But uh, right. good for him and, and good for what he did because the NIL thing is proper. It is, yeah. it is correct. Um, and I know that a lot of people don't like it without going too far into it. But I love the idea, and I've seen it happening already, for smaller schools are able to really compete with the bigger schools Mm -hmm. for that because it's like, hey, you can go be a fish in the big pond or you can come be the fish in our little pond. And they're able to give players really nice NIL deals. I'm talking about non-rev sports, volleyball, track and field. 
you know, kids that are marketable and it's like, you know what, I could go to the big name school for my sport, whether it's basketball, football, whatever, but I could also go to Piddly U and there's nothing around there and I've got all of the NIL deals right. because all the locals are like, oh man, this is the best player, you know, and so I really think it's going to help with parity, I think it's going to even out. And again, that goes back to the coaches freaking out because I think they see that. I think they see that it's not going to be as easy to get every good player to go to their school because the kids are going to be like, why go to Kentucky? Why go to Kansas? Why go to Duke? I can stay at home because everybody knows me here and I'm getting this NIL deal to stay at this local college, uh, Puxatawney Tech, and, <laughs> and I'm getting an NIL deal that's bigger than I would have gotten and I'm the big fish. Right. And I'm having a great time. In I definitely think it's definitely going to help HBCUs. Yes. It's definitely going to help the smaller schools. Now, watching it also happen at the exact same time as mega conferences are becoming, you know, I've, I still, I mean, I was literally at work at Kilroy's when I saw the news about USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten. I'm just like, how does this make sense? No. Because most of the country is in between. USC and fucking India. Like, you think the kids from USC are pumped to have to go to West fucking Lafayette? Or New Jersey for Rutgers? Right. Oh, God. They got to go forget all the way about Rutgers. Yeah, well, that's what they brought Rutgers in. Was yeah. They think they were going to get the New York market. Yeah. And they didn't. And so that makes you think, okay, maybe they're going to kick Rutgers out. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. But yeah, now the, now the other conferences are scrambling. Um, it's so weird. Big 12 is trying to add teams. They're talking about, you know, and but it's like the scraps. You right. Know, they're getting Utah. You know, great market for Utah, but no one in and Colorado the even cares is, about Utah. Is, is going to dissolve? It or? has to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've got, uh, it's already. Oregon. they got Oregon is the only one that people aren't really going after, which is weird because their football is incredible. Uh, and they're and, a and Nike they're, school. And they're funded by Nike, <laughs> which is right, right there. And so you would think that Oregon they be can become independent. They have to at yeah. this point. I don't think there's going to be a Pac-12 from what it looks like right now. I, again, right. I don't know, but the Big 12 is trying to catch up, and I just wish Kansas had gotten into the Big 10 because selfishly I would like to see more of their games. But I don't think that's going to happen now. I right. think they're just going to stay with the Big, Te- Big 12. All right, so my next question is, uh, I mean, it's obviously a thing that has happened, uh, but it's, it's different in the NBA. But have you ever been fired? I mean, getting traded, I would assume, is the equivalent or being cut. Uh, You you know, being traded or or cut is like being fired in the NBA. I almost got fired from my cart boy job because I was sloughing off too much and and, uh, eating too many of the sandwiches there at the club pro shop. But, um, no, I have never been fired uh, other than when I asked the Atlanta Hawks to cut me. Right. uh, So that I could sign up. That's more like I quit. Yeah, and and it was. Yeah. And so – I haven't had to deal with that other than, you know, both times I got traded, though, I found out from media. Uh, when I was in Detroit, I woke up in Detroit. I went in to work out, and one of the players was like, what are you doing here? I was like, ha, what are you doing here? And he goes, no, you got traded. It was in the paper this morning. I was like, wait, what? They could do that? Oh no idea. God. And so th- that would be the closest thing that I could say is, is like being fired because I was just going in to work out with the Pistons, and all of a sudden they're like, no, nah, man. And then the GM wouldn't even see me. Because apparently the deal wasn't done yet. So I had to sit outside his office for like an hour while he finished up my deal. And then he pulled me in. And he goes, hey, we just traded you to the Atlanta Hawks. <laughs> and How old a, were you? I was uh, 24 at this time. What's that like? Because, I mean, that's such 
I don't know, man. Well, like that's it, old now in NBA right. terms. Uh, you know, I went all four years of college, so this was back. I was the same draft class as Tim Duncan. He was the number one pick, and you know, we were both, and, and a good portion of our draft class was all three and four year guys. Right, and so we were older than they are now. Like now, it's like nineteen year olds mm-hmm. having to go through this and get traded around like a piece of meat. Uh, so I was grateful that the, I was mature enough and new enough. I was already married at that point mm-hmm. um, and had a baby. And so I was just, you know, a little bit more stable uh, and grounded like, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, I have a family to take care of, you know. And, and so the disappointment of being traded is scary because it's like, up. Oh. And you were only in year one? It was, yeah, it was the beginning of my second year. Uh, the lockout ended and it was spring of 1999. I had played my rookie year in Detroit and was planning on playing the last two years of my rookie contract in Detroit and went in to work out, and they were like, nope, you're out of here. And so then I go to Atlanta, and I had just signed a lease on a house because I was there for like three weeks. Even though I was sick, I was there alone. And I signed a lease on a house and started getting a car and all that kind of stuff to get resettled in, a, in another new city. And literally, like, the day after I signed the lease on the house, they're like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to cut you or we're going to, you know, put you on the injured reserve list without injury and see what happens, make you a guinea pig. And that's why I was like, oh, then just cut me. Right. So then I signed with Sacramento, and my family is in Kansas uh, waiting to see where I'm going next because it's like, well, don't go to Sacramento because we just were about to go to Atlanta and move everything there, and I got cut. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm on a one-year deal, which was just that spring season. It was the shortened season. There was only three months of the season. Right. So I'm like, I'm not buying a house in Sacramento or, you know, so I lived in cup corporate housing. It was a little three bedroom thing with, that was fully furnished, like down to the utensils. Uh, because I was like, I had nothing. Right. Third city in three weeks again. And I'm like, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I was in a hotel until I found this place. And then I was in corporate housing for the rest of that season. And then that summer they were like, Hey, we're going to sign you to another one year deal. So again, I'm like, I don't think I should buy a house. So I rented, and then I signed a, a big deal with Sacramento. Um, and then halfway through that one, three years in, I'm sitting at Kansas playing cards with my friends, and they're like, oh, turn the TV on. And we're watching TV, playing cards, and all of a sudden across the ticker, uh, three-team deal, Scott Pollard's traded to the Indiana Pacers. I'm like, right. what the shit, twice? Both times I got traded, I had no idea. And, and all of a sudden I'm on Did a Did you city. even know you were on the block? No, not at all. Either time. Neither time. And, I mean, I had signed a six-year deal with Sacramento. They were like, you're part of the future of this franchise. We're building, you know, they, we had been to the NBA Finals. Or right. Western Conference Finals, not the NBA Finals, but Western Conference Finals in 2002. And then in the fall of 2002, after that, is when I fractured my spine. I had a sacrum mm-hmm. fracture. It's a, no one ever has done it. Don't worry about it. But that happened. And I was the first professional athlete ever that they could find that had ever done that. And they don't know how. But I had to take like four months off to let it heal because the, the, no one knew what to do. One doctor, right. the Lakers doctor said it was a tumor. And the Kansas doctor looked at my MRI and he was like, oh, you, you're going to have to get career-ending surgery. They're going to have to take your pelvis off and put a screw in your sacrum because it's never going to heal. It won't. And the Sacramento doctors were like, how about we just take some time off and you don't run and you don't do anything on pavement or hard floors. Uh, we'll have you swim a lot and do some water treadmill. Uh, for a few months, and we'll take another MRI and see if it heals, and it did. But I was never the same. Right. And that's the only inclination I could possibly have had that I might get traded. So that's what that long-winded story was going to. I had no idea 
that I was going to get traded. It was a complete surprise. No one ever said anything. But in retrospect, I think it's possible that they were like, we don't know how that back is going to do. And he wasn't the same. And my first game back, I came back and played against the Jazz. And my former uh, college teammate, Greg Ostertag, was on that team. I got my finger stuck in his jersey. I was guarding him. And it snapped to the bone in my hand. And it was just a spiral fracture. It didn't even hurt. I ended up stealing the ball from him. And Mike Bibby got it. And then I outran everybody. And Mike Bibby threw it back to me. And I dunked it. And that hurt. Right. And then they called a timeout because Jerry Sloan was mad at Greg. And so he was call- he called a timeout so he could yell at Greg. And I go over to my trainer. I'm like, hey, man, I think I tweaked my, my finger. I jammed my finger. And he <coughs> holds his fingers out. And he goes, make a fist. I made a fist. And the bone in my hand just went sh- and, like, shot up. And I was like, you didn't see that? He goes, yeah, dude, you're done. You broke your hand. I was like, no, 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 no. This is my first game back. And so I sat out. And I had to sit out. And I only sat out like 10 days. I was like, I'm d- put, put plastic on it, do something. But right. I'm not sitting out anymore. I just sat out four months. I'm not sitting out. And then my first game back from that, I come to Indiana and I gave him the business. I had like 17 points and like 18 rebounds or some crazy stats even for yeah. me. Uh, because Chris wasn't playing. Weber was the starter. And right. when he was out, I started. And I gave him the business. And, you know, again, hindsight, I'm going, ah, Indiana saw me do that and thought, let's get rid of Brad Miller because Brad was on a – he was about to sign a really big deal, twice what I was making. Right. And so they didn't want to pay him. And they were getting what they thought was Brad Miller for half the money. Right. And Brad and I are very different players. We're good friends now because everybody – he lives in Sacramento. And yeah, I, and I live here. Like he, he got traded to Sacramento and stayed there, and I got traded to Indiana and stayed here, even though I'm from California and he's from here. I don't think Brad still lives there, does he? He does. He's got a place there. He has a place here. He has, he has a, a place in my hometown. Yeah, he's got hundreds of acres up there. Yeah, yeah. He goes hunting, but he has a place in Sacramento, yeah. and that's uh, where he raises his daughter. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, and I'll see him in a couple weeks. So I'm going out for another charity golf tournament out there. And I'm yeah, sure Brad's up there. Yeah kind of near where i'm from and then brian cardinal is up there yeah uh in my hometown um i run into brian once in a while i haven't seen him in a while but yeah yeah, we run into each other once in a while so yeah and so you came to indiana in what year 2003 got traded uh it was a three-team deal they just san antonio was involved too right um and uh yeah got traded here and was went house hunting with my realtor and had no idea where to live and were you on the team during the Malice in the Palace? Yeah, that was my second year here. Third year. My what was that first, like? It was awful. Yeah. It was, a, it was a terrible, terrible experience that shouldn't have happened and wouldn't have happened. Uh, but it was a, a, a terrible coincidence of events. So in 2004, uh, the spring of 2004, we're in the Eastern Conference Finals with the Detroit Pistons. Uh, and we lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and they end up winning the whole thing. Right. And we were the better team. We had a better record. Um, we had a higher seed, but we, we lost. So we come back that fall of 2004, and Rick Carlisle wants to send a message because he had coached the Detroit Pistons before, uh, beca- before coming to the Pacers. And he knew that team, and he felt like that was his team, and they wanted to ring, and he was pissed that he didn't win with us to right. beat his old team. So he wanted to send a message. And we're, the game's out of hand. It's over. We're up so big, we beat the crap out of them. And the game's over. I'm in a suit. My back was bad. Right. <laughs> still. Um, and so I'm in a suit. And our starters are still in the game. And Ben Wallace and Ron Artest and, and all of the starters are getting chippy because the Pistons got their asses handed to them. And they're not happy about being in the game still. 
as the coaches, you take your starters out. The game's over. We sent the message, but no. They left them in. Now, if the coaches had done the right thing, pulled the starters, the bench players are going in. They're not mad. They're just right. finishing out the game. We know the drill. We're professionals. You go in. You finish the game out. But the starters were pissed. So that was – it stemmed from the previous season playoffs. The, na- the world champions, the Detroit Pistons, are getting their asses handed to them on national TV because it's a reuniting – it was a national TV game because it's a reuniting of the West Eastern Conference Finals right. matchup. So it was a big game, and we handed it to them. So they're pissed. They're embarrassed. And we're, our coach is trying to beat them up more. And it, that's, that's why it happened. It happened because of that. It didn't have to. The, the thing that Ron did, he was reacting in his mind what he thought was uh, non-aggressive. Right. But it was absolutely as passive-aggressive as you, as you could possibly be. It pissed off Ben Wallace. He went over and laid down on the scorer's table. Right. And Ben was mad. And the fans obviously lost it. And Ben threw something at Ron Artest. Well, then his his hero just threw oh. something at Ron Artest. So this fan threw something at Ron Artest. He's wearing right. Ben Wallace jersey. And Ron, obviously, you saw, we've seen the, the footage. But it was awful. And, and it, there was nothing scary about it until people started pouring in to the, to the court. Because then it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't belong here. And right. We don't know what you've got. This was before there were, you know, it's like flying in the 70s. You could just walk onto a plane with your gun. Nobody's checking. Right. There was no security. <laughs> and so this was like that. You know, there's no metal detectors in, in 19 uh, or 2003 uh, to get into the Pistons Palace. Uh, and so, like it is now in every NBA arena, because of that. Right. Because uh, partly, and a good part, because of that. Because we didn't know who had weapons, and they might have. But nobody did, and all the fans took the worst end of it because we're giants, right? And you know, you work at Kilroy's, you get this. You know, that's yeah. that's why you're the you're the doorman because people don't want to mess with you, right? Um, and that's it. You know, they get down, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, watching, they're way bigger in person. Yeah, watching that guy uh, almost get decapitated by Jermaine O'Neal. Who luckily slipped oh, yeah. and didn't kill that guy for for his own good? You know, again, physics. We're right. big. We're big people. Us hitting a normal sized person is way different than a normal sized person hitting a normal sized person. Right. Physics matter. And yeah, that that slip of whatever it was, beer, sprite, whatever is on the ground, saved that dude's life. He really, literally, could have killed him. Yeah. And it would have been even a worse night right. for everybody. Yeah, but it would have changed the. I mean, that night changed the NBA for him. Yeah, yeah. But it could have been way, way worse. Yep. So yeah. So you go from Indiana and then you get traded to, or do you get? I'm a free agent. Free agent. And Indiana didn't want me no more. Uh, we were having a postseason party at Bird's house. He was the GM at the time, Larry Bird. And one of my teammates was like, "Hey man, so what if I said Scott got a two year deal for eight million at this other team?" And Bird goes, "He should take it." <laughs> which was my uh, 100% surety that they were not going to resign me at any number. Right. And again, I, this was year nine and I'm like, ah, I just want one more year. Right. I like, I really was like, I'll take the minimum. I don't want to move again. I don't want to go to my fifth team at this point, uh, fourth team at this point. Uh, you know, every team I played for Detroit, Sacramento, Indiana, I was like, I want to play here my whole career. I didn't go to a place where I didn't want to be there. I always was in, on teams I wanted to be a part of. Right. I liked the organization. I liked the coaches and, and you know, I liked the teammates. Did you like the city? Uh, 
I lived not in Detroit. Well, the, back then they played in Auburn Hills, which right. is an hour north of yeah, the I know. city. Yeah. Uh, and so I lived in Birmingham. I lived okay. in a little, I, the Carmel of the area. Right. You know, it was a little pocket of just really old, cute homes. Mm-hmm. And I had cute old neighbors. Uh, and it was great. A little tiny downtown, very manageable. And we flew out of Detroit Fort Wayne Airport. But that was the only time I ever went to the city was to fly. Right. And other than that, even the teammates, they were like, don't go down there. If you go, rent a car. Don't take your car. Right. Like, they were like, just stay away from the city. Don't go. And these are the bad boys. This is Rick Mahorn and Joe right. Dumars that have lived there their whole lives, you know? Yeah. Um, telling me not to do that. So, um, I didn't. But, um, yeah, I, even then, I wanted to be there. And I wanted to stay in Sacramento because you're a rock star in Sacramento. They had they had, had so many years of futility and bad teams that when we were good, man, we were rock stars. And the Maloofs owned it at the mm-hmm. time. And, and they, they were, were great owners. They were rock stars. Great owners. Yeah. And the the crash got them. Like they, yeah. they paid cash for their third tower in in Vegas, and then nobody bought the condos because the crash happened and it killed them. Like they just they overextended and they had to sell the team. Um, but then you know Indiana, I wanted to stay here. Yeah, you know I was three years here and I was like, man, this is great. I'm a pacer and and we're gonna get past this stupid brawl thing that killed the franchise and and they haven't. I, I don't even think they still have really gotten past it it, yeah. it really damaged the franchise uh forever irreparably in some ways um and then uh i'm in vegas with my friends that summer after my after bird gives gives <laughs> gives the the this not so subtle hint yeah he should take that deal <laughs> if, if he get if somebody offers him two years he should take that deal which it was very clear that he wasn't going to give me a deal at all so i'm in vegas playing craps with my buddies and we're having a terrible table and I'm like, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm going to go over to this other table. And I went over and it was reserved. And the guy was like, it's okay, Scott, this guy's not coming. I know he's not coming. So you can have this table. I was like, well, I don't like playing by myself, but I'll, I'll see if anybody else comes up. I was like, please, if anybody else wants to play, let him. Cause craps is a community game. Right. And this little tiny guy comes walking up and he goes, do you mind if I join you? I was like, no, absolutely. You know, more the merrier. And so we start playing. It's just the two of us and we roll, we win a couple thousand dollars each. And, um, he's asking me all these questions. He's peppering me. He's just like, what do you think about this guy? What do you think about that guy? NBA questions. And I'm just like firing off answers. I'm like, well, this is great. This is great. I think this guy's good, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, that's a great organization, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just firing back the answers. And we had a good time. And he goes, well, hey, man, thanks. Sorry to bother you, but just it was nice talking with you. Here's my card. It was Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> and one month later, I'm a Cleveland Cavalier. Nice. So when I do speeches, I, I always talk about first impressions. And right. how, you know, even as a, as a spoiled brat and immature in many ways NBA player, I still always want to give people a good first impression. There's, there's so many opportunities that to be annoyed by those basketball questions and be a jerk because you're just trying to be, your, you know, be on your vacation or eat dinner with your family or your friends. And somebody comes up and goes, hey, can I get a picture or whatever? And I went to the NBA Finals because I was nice at a craps table to the owner of the Cavs. I know Danny Ferry was the GM at the time. He hated me. He hated me. I know he didn't want to sign me. He was forced. And as soon as he had a chance to not pay me again, like I signed a two-year deal, but the second year was was their option, and he he didn't exercise it. He didn't want me back. And so then that was my 10th year, and I retired, sort of, (laughs) until Boston called. But even then, I wanted to stay. I, right. I, I, I wanted to be a Cav, and I, the city is not a great place. I lived in Westlake, which is like 20 minutes west of downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, the downtown is much more vibrant now and much more livable now than it was when I lived there. Uh, but still, not my favorite city, but 
I like the organization. I love the right. owner. I mean, he's just a great guy. Dan is a great dude, and his wife, they nonstop. And you were with LeBron? Yeah, played yeah. with LeBron. We got to the finals. He dragged our asses to the finals. Right, I remember. Um, and we got swept by the Spurs. Um, and so, yeah, and it just – the part of why I was there also was the head coach at the time was Mike Brown, who was an assistant here in Indiana when I played for the Pacers. So he, right. he and I had known each other since high school, actually. And now coaches at uh, – are you? No, that's that's not Mike Brown. That's a oh. um, different NBA coach. Right. Mike Brown got hired, I think he's back in L.A.? Yeah. Or Sacramento. He got. I think it's either Sacramento or L.A. Yeah. hired Mike Brown. I believe it's actually Sacramento now. That's he's right. A, he's a new basketball coach out there. But um, Woody is the coach at, oh, yeah. at IU. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mike Woodson. Uh, also a good dude. He was actually the Atlanta Hawks coach right after I was a Atlanta Hawk because Lenny Wilkins was the coach when I was there, and he never knew my name. It was funny. I, when the, the day I could practice, uh, I walk in, and he goes, you, Gardiki. He was talking about Dikembe. Yeah. He goes, you, Gardiki. I was like, well, I'm not going to be here very long. He doesn't know my name. Right. <laughs> the head coach doesn't know all 12 of us that are on the roster. All right. <laughs> Who is your favorite person you've ever played with? Um. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of really good people, some not so good people that I played with. But uh, one of my favorite teammates probably would be Vlade Divac. That dude was so well respected everywhere we went. I went to his hometown. Uh, we flew out. They opened up a museum to him in his hometown of Priepoli, Serbia. Uh, I learned a whole bunch about the war, his personal life, because when we were teammates, that war was going on. Right. And he was up all night, most nights, smoking cigarettes trying to figure yeah. out if his family was alive or dead. Um, and, you know, because his, his wife and kids were with him, but mm -hmm. he ended up adopting a child whose whole family was killed. His daughter, Petra, her whole family was killed in the war, and that's his daughter now because she had nowhere else to go. Um, and still showed up, and the bell rang, and he was ready to go. And, right. and you could tell he hadn't slept, and he hadn't showered. I, I knew that because I had to guard his stinky ass. But... <laughs> Um, just an awesome dude, uh, awesome humanitarian, uh, charitable human, always giving back to, to other people and helping other people out. It just, uh, but also really funny. I mean, he's, right. a, he's a February guy. I'm a February guy. We're, we're kind of weird Aquariuses and we, we got along. We had a lot of good times and, and, uh, great guy as a teammate and off the, off the court as well. Right. This episode of The Shift is brought to you by Weed Maps. Weed Maps, the number one app for finding marijuana dispensaries wherever you are. Are you in a state and you want to know where you can get that kind, bud? Then use Weed Maps. They will show you different dispensaries' menus, what their specials are, and how to get there. So again, if you're looking for to get higher than the fucking Smoky Mountains, then fucking use Weed Maps. Weed maps. All right, so you're done with the NBA. What do you do? What do you do? Uh, that was reminding me of speed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got a bomb strapped to your chest. You got to go 50 miles an hour. What do you do? Um, I did nothing. I, I, I took the vacations. I spent so much more time with my family uh, and, and enjoyed that and was making up for those times where I had to leave for a right. two-week trip and miss – graduation or miss kindergarten or miss you know the the parent teacher conferences or, and and all the things that i missed basketball games or, or soccer games or whatever uh and all of that that i missed i was just loving it i went to all of the parent teacher conferences i was doing all of the mom and, and dad and uh and 
just loving it. Fired the nannies. We had nannies living with us to help raise the kids. I fired them. I was like, nope, I got this. I'm home. I'm going to do all this. And went full steam into it and loved it. Uh, but it didn't work out uh, for my family life. Uh, got a divorce three years later. Uh, I was around too much, apparently. Right. Uh, and so that, that ended, and we got three kids together, and that's why we stayed in Indiana. Really, It's crazy how we've seen a lot more of that dynamic where – if your relationship is built off you not being around, like, you know, the usual of you not being around, how much the pandemic, because people were home, like how many relationships actually crumbled because... Family law boomed. Yeah. And and that is not a really well-talked-about side effect of the pandemic. I know a lot of people here that got divorced strictly because of that. They were around each other. That's crazy. It is. It is crazy because it's like, oh, this is who I want to spend my life with. Just not every minute of it. Right. And it strengthened my relationship. My wife and I both, this is both of our second marriage. And so we know what disappointment is. We know what doing it the wrong way is. And whenever we start getting a little off balance, because everybody does, we always have been able to correct it. Right. And get back on the same path uh, and find our way back to each other and, and embrace each other physically and emotionally. But I can see how it would absolutely drive people apart right irreparably because yeah i mean i you see it in retired people you mm-hmm. see guys that work for 25 years or whatever and they retire and they're like oh i'll just play golf and be around and all of a sudden the wife's like no 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 or or the husband you know whichever right. it is that was the breadwinner stops being the breadwinner uh and all of a sudden they're around and i've seen it i've seen people it's like how do you get divorced after you've been married for 25 years what what could have gone wrong he was around or she yeah. was around i i couldn't be around them anymore uh, because they were gone all the time, and that was our dynamic. It worked, and then all of a sudden, you're back around each other. And so uh, I, that was it. And uh, for, uh, for me personally, we were just around each other all the time, and we had only known the NBA lifestyle as married people. I got mar- right. We got married right before I got drafted. And so as married people, we had only known that schedule. I was home in the summer, and by the end of every summer, it was like we were at each other's head, and then all of a sudden, the season would start, and, you know, I'm back uh, gone. Right. You know, and so – but yeah, um, it, this this pandemic, family law, my lawyers, I'm still involved with that. And Did you do Survivor during the NBA season or after? Oh, way after. Survivor right. was 2015. Was okay. When we filmed or we filmed yeah 2015 and it aired in 2016. What made you want to do that? Um, most of the money, but also that you know what we were talking about early on, like not being scared to try something. Right. And actually, they called me in 2011 for the first time. And I could not leave. That was towards the end of my marriage, my first marriage. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't a good time for me to leave the country for seven weeks. Right. And so I uh, turned down and they took Cliff Robinson. Okay. Uh, that's when he went on for the first iteration of Brains, Brawn, Beauty. And so then I went to casting in 2014 or 15, early 15. And they had me watch his season. They had me watch some other athlete seasons to get right. an idea because I had never watched the show. And they were trying to teach me how to play uh, and get a strategy as well as do the casting, mm-hmm. uh, which is nuts. They give you every personality quiz. You talk to psychiatrists and counselors. They knew they know who you are. Like they they're gonna find That's out crazy. who you are. People are like, "What's your advice?" I'm like, "Be you," because they're gonna find out anyway. Right. And then they're gonna find out if you mix with the idea that they don't even tell you. We're on the boat. Like we had gone through casting. We went out to Survivor School. We flew. We flew to Cambodia. You can't talk to anybody. They have producers with you. Everywhere you go in casting, you don't get to talk to anybody that's not a producer. 
because they're other castmates because they don't want you forming bonds without the camera being on you. And on the flight to Cambodia, there's producers sitting in between you so you're not talking to the other castmates. And they have you sitting in different pla- parts of the plane. And then you do four days of survivor school where they tell you, okay, if you see this run, this will kill you. Or if you see this in the water, don't touch it. Or that, that you can eat. You can eat this plant. If you eat this plant, you're going to get diarrhea. You know, so you're learning all that. Stay, same. No talking. No talking. Because they can't have you forming an alliance before the cameras start. And so that was the hardest part for me was shutting up. <laughs> yeah, you're a very jovial, talkative guy. Yeah, and sing, no singing because I'd start singing songs and they're, when we were filming. Yeah. And they're like, Scott, the producer would come running over. Shut up. We can hear you all the way over there on the island. I'm like, so? We don't have the rights to Frank Sinatra's My right. Way. I'm like, oh, okay. So then I made up songs and they'd still come running over. They're like, <laughs> stop singing. I'm like, hey, it's not copyrighted. It's mine. You can have it. And they're like, no, you got to stop singing. We can hear you. I'm like, oh, because I'm getting the villain edit. You can't show my jovial side. Got right. it. Couldn't talk about my kids. Couldn't talk about anything fun. They edited all that out. Uh, and made me into a villain, which was fine. I, right. I knew that. As soon as I saw the other tattooed guy, Jason, who were still very friends, very good friends, we were like, let's have some fun with this. Right. And we did. We had a blast. And nobody got hurt. I mean, right. we, just, we, we had fun. And, you know, I still, I got one last night on a post because I was eating coconut chunks. I posted that, like, it reminded me of being on the island. And somebody put up, like, you know, you're this or that. It's like, Dude, it's a TV show. Right. You know, it's been seven years. You need to really evaluate your and priorities. And it's edited to make it look like, you know, yeah, three, a certain way. Yeah, three days of real life for one hour episode. Yeah. And so then you do Survivor. You kind of ride that wave. And then you come home. And then you decide to get into real estate? or Yeah, 2018, my wife and I both started class. We were like, you know what? We're in Indiana. We're, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's give ourselves a little bit more cushion. And let's be able to do more for our community. Right. Um, and so we started class, and literally three days into class, it was a three-week course, three days in, TNT calls and says, hey, uh, Kansas is in the Final Four. Will you come do the team cast this weekend for the Final Four? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I will. So we quit school, uh, and I went and did that uh, for the Final Four, and we got smashed by uh, uh, Villanova in the first, first right. game of the Final Four. And so we spent the rest of the weekend in San Antonio doing nothing because our flight wasn't until Tuesday anyway. So we just enjoyed the weekend, uh, hung out with Charles Barkley, who is just an awesome human being. Yeah. Love that guy. Um, but uh, and, and others, too. We hung out with, we got to hang out with Samuel L. Jackson for a little while. I mean, that awesome dude also. Nice. Um, but uh, then my wife found another time in our schedule that I could go back to the class, uh, but she couldn't because of our son. Uh, and his, you know, just being a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I went to class and got my license and became an agent and love it. And I should have done this many, many years ago because I love it. I love helping people with it. I love educating people on, on what they need to know, what they don't need to worry about. Right. Let me, let me handle that stuff. Let me do the stress because I'm not emotionally invested. Right. Uh, you know, I, it's, I'm the transactor. Uh, and then last year she got her license and we really have come to a new level as a team. Uh, because she's very, very good at it. She's the she's the brains, and I'm the beauty. Right. Uh, if you see us, you would know. You know when you see us. Next yeah, to you're other, so much hotter than your wife. You have no idea that I'm the good looking one yeah. in the relationship, and she's she's tolerable. You know? Right. But she's really smart, so she makes up for it. 
Um, <laughs> there's a heavy dose of sarcasm. We're not on TV right now, but uh, look look her up. No, she should get a um, tax credit just for marrying your ugly ass. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that is accurate. Um, but no, uh, so as a team, we we love it. It gives us an opportunity to help people, uh, both as the transactors, but also a, a portion of every one of our transactions goes to the Mybor Foundation, which helps fight homelessness and provides shelter for for people that are homeless. And so, it, it gives us another way to give back and right. become. Hoosiers by Choice, which is a campaign they did about a year ago, and we, we were part of that. Uh, because neither one of us is from here. We didn't choose Indiana. Indiana chose us. I, I kidnapped my wife from Denver. She's known Denver, Colorado her whole life. That's where she's born. And ra- well, she was born in Germany, but uh, Army brat, military brat, and so moved around Colorado, but Colorado is all she's ever known. And you know, she woke up one day and going, why am I living in Indiana? Uh, but yet, again, she's like, Let's be realtors. Let's right. let's do something and give back. Let's let's you know we're here to raise kids. Uh, we didn't choose it, but now we've chosen it, and we right. put we put roots down, and and we're we're realtors so that we can be more involved in the community and help other people. Uh, I do the charity things. You know, stand up is fun, but um, it it also helps me practice being on the microphone because I get asked to MC charity events, right? And it helps polish you know my routine or whatever. Right. Just so that it, again, I'm, I'm better uh, as an MC because I've I've gone up and done the real pressure of stand-up comedy. Right. That that really makes you focus and sharpen your skills on, on a microphone. So, um, it, it's it's really it's just been great. We love being realtors. Uh, and again, I should have done it a long time ago because it's just a blast. We sold houses downtown, Whitestown, Westfield. Uh, I haven't done Fishers, but been I've shopped in Fishers. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't helped anybody in Fishers, but not out of the question it's just it's a little bit of a hike for us yeah um but really doing well here in the village of west clay we're we're uh getting a lot of business here uh and that's where we focus on because we like to be you know experts at right. something you can't be an expert in the whole area yeah I, i'm not an expert in greenwood I'm yeah not an expert in pendleton you know i don't know those areas so i'm not going to pretend to be that if right. i have a client that wants me to help them buy a house somewhere i will i've helped people buy houses in scottsburg two hours south yeah but, you know, it's not where my expertise lies. Uh, so we, we tend to focus on our little niche here. But we've helped people all over uh, the Indiana Indianapolis area. Uh, and it's, again, just it's a blast. And I love it because people get stressed. It's, it's the biggest investment that most of us will ever make. Right. And it can be nerve-wracking. And, and when, you, when you have a realtor that you're fighting with or, or fighting against, it can make it even worse. So... We know that we've bought and sold houses, and I've bought and sold houses in seven states and two countries, and that's given <clears> me a lot of the ability. I was the jerk. I was right. the one yelling at realtors. You don't know what you're talking about. This is blah blah blah. This is the price. Nah, that's all I'm taking. And and so I have that now, and I get yelled at, and it's fine. It doesn't bother me because, again, I'm just a transactor, and I help people get through the process uh, with hopefully as little screaming as possible. <laughs> right. Uh, and every transaction is different because every people are different right you know it's and it's fun dealing with different personalities i'm used to it uh you know from being in different locker rooms and survivor you know right you're always dealing with people you don't necessarily want to right um, and and, in those professions and so this profession i was prepared for it and um most of the time we have people we love working with and every once in a while there's clients that are difficult but it's still fun and i still enjoy it and um you know, we don't judge anybody. It's it's a stressful thing, and, and we get it. We get it when the when the claws come out. We totally understand because we've been there. I've been the jerk. So, you have such an interesting story going from 
you know, one of the best college basketball programs, um, having to move around a lot, doing all that stuff, then going to the NBA, being a part of very memorable franchises during their runs. I remember that Sacramento King run, um, you know, especially against the, you know, that, that Lakers series. A lot of people have some ideas about what was going on there. Um, you know, because you were, you know, and you've been a part of mostly small markets. Yeah. Uh, not the big, the big franchises, but you've been mostly part. Of, and then you transition to that at 33, you're done with what you wanted to do growing up. And then, you know, you, you do the family stuff and then you go on to a TV show. And then now you're doing real estate and now you're taking that real estate and you're also helping the community. What is your advice for anybody who just, you know, is tired of doing what they're doing and they want to make that jump? And like, I, that's the point of the podcast is to talk about what it's like making that jump. And you've had to make so many different jumps at such early ages. A lot of people, you know, wait until they're maybe going to retire. You know, you had to retire from this dream scenario and then go into something that you're now super stoked with, but like. I'd still think if you could play basketball, you'd still be playing basketball, probably, right? Um, if, if if physically I felt well enough, yeah, I probably would. Right. It's an easy gig, man. They're getting paid so much more. Like now, I know what Bill Walton felt like when I signed my big deal, right? Because <laughs> I made more money than Bill Walton ever made, and he's from San Diego, so there's a connection right. there. I used to live with his kids when I was homeless. Um, they took me in for a portion of the time, so um, it's it's big numbers now, and, and right. I'm like, wow. Like that guy makes that, that's awesome. Yeah, but I'd be making that, you right? Know? And so it's like, wow, okay, cool. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm done with it. Like I've made my peace. But yeah, the, the money would be enticing if I was right. physically able. I would be. But I'm 47. I'm old and broken, and everything hurts. But um, it, my advice to anybody, there's always an excuse. I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do for money. You know, I can't quit my job that I hate right? because how am I going to live? I've got bills. I've got kids or I've got relationship is on the rocks or whatever it is. And there's there's really no excuse to not go for happiness. Right. It, life is short. Get at it. I, I've been saying that my whole life. Life is short. Get at it. And I had a, a harsh reminder of that when I was 16 and my dad died. And I was like, shit, he never saw me do anything. He never saw me do anything great. I got arrested right before he died because I was doing dumb shit. I was stealing things. And I got arrested and I got community service and luckily I was a minor and it didn't count because if I'd been an adult, I was a felony. It was grand theft. Um, but luckily, <coughs> the, the laws were kind and it sealed right. and, and that's gone and I stopped you know, immediately. That was all it took. I got caught and, and that was it. But he, he never got to see me do anything good. And so... That was my first catalyst of, I'm going to just do it. I've got to get serious and just do it. So jump. you got to jump. It's scary as hell. It's scary. It's scary to go get in front of a microphone and, and become a stand-up comic right. just on a lark, on a whim. And I scared the hell out of myself, and I did it. And, you know, being a realtor, I, you know, it's hard. There's over 10,000 agents in this area. And right now, last I checked, there's only like two or 3,000 houses for sale. Right. It's three to one, man. I mean, that's hard odds to, to work in this environment right now. And there's a lot of competition. So it's scary no matter what it is. But 
the excuses are just going to make you more miserable. If the excuses pile up, it's like, oh, I don't have the money. I don't have this. I don't have that. I've got stress. i got people to take care of. i got bills. But that is self-talk that's going to talk you down and make you more miserable. Right. And so you've got to jump. And it's scary as hell, but you will never regret jumping, even if you fail a couple times. And Lord knows I have failed more times than I can count. Uh, but jumping again. And you can look at it and go, oh, man, well, you always had that NBA money to fall back on. Not anymore. Right. Uh, divorce is expensive. Lawyers are expensive. And that's why I'm a realtor in, in big part is because we, we need that cushion. Right. And we're doing very well because we're doing things that other realtors aren't doing. It's all we do. Right. A lot of realtors, it's not their job. It's what they do when they have time. It's a side gig. It's a side gig. Yeah. And good for them. Not knocking them. But it's all we do. We're in the office, in our home office, or in our office in the village every day. And that's what we do. And we're looking for people. We're, we're helping people. We're touching past clients. We're, you know, we're always trying to get better. And so it's that fear of failure that's keeping us in there and keeping us working. And you know, we, we're always learning from each transaction to be better and do things. Uh, oh, you know what? We messed up on that one. Let's do that better next time. And so, yeah, that's my advice. Life is short. Get at it. Like you, the, the, the negative self-talk of why you can't do what it is that you want to do is what's keeping you from doing it. It's not the world. It's right. You, it's you. You've got to, to lose that fear and just jump. And even if you fail, you'll still be proud of yourself for jumping. And right. going, you know what? I quit that shitty job. And I was miserable and I complained about it all the time. But this is what I want to do. I want to try for this job. Go do it. Life is short. Get at it. Bet on yourself. Yep. Absolutely. So if anybody wants to buy a house, where could they get a hold of you? Where could they follow you? Where could they? Uh, you can go to the PollardRealtors.com. That's our website. Um, and it's just one long word. Uh, or Houses in Carmel, if that's easier. They both go to the same website. Um, we are very active on social media. My, my Insta is Scott P1T, Scott P31, my... Twitter is Scott Pollard 31, one T. One T. Yeah. Get it right, people. When I came out, my mama said a four-letter word, so that's why I only have one T. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, uh, my wife's, yeah, I mean, our email is thepollardrealtors at gmail.com. Uh, we have an office here in the village of West Clay. And again, we, we focus on the village. This is because it's where we live, but we can help you in any any market. Uh, we've, like I said, we've sold houses downtown Indianapolis and Whitestown and all around, um, Scottsburg. Shoot. That, that's, that's our record. Two hours. Two T's for Scottsburg. Yeah. Though. Two T's down there. Not named after me, but yeah. it should be. It should be. Awesome come, just, place. just come on, Scottsburg. <laughs> Let's drop, drop that T. Drop the T and name it after me. Put on time. some sideburns and. <laughs> but yeah, so we're, we're all over. And I mean, I can give out our phone number. I don't care. My, my work number is 317-900-3500. Pretty easy number to remember. 900-3500. Yep. And give us a call. We, we, we love what we do. We could always be busier. Um, and we're having a record year, but we're, we could always be busier. We're, we're, we love it. And so give us a call. Or, Hell yeah. Or just follow us on social media because we take gross pictures of us making love all the time. We're, we're a very loving couple. And so yeah. not, not actual act of making love, but like we're, we're always in each other's business. So uh, if you like being grossed out by lovey-dovey stuff, follow us on social media. Dawn is Don Pollard uh, on Instagram, I believe, and Twitter, same thing. 
two great people who I luckily had the chance to meet because of comedy. Uh, Scott and I have done a couple shows, several shows together at this yeah. point. And Don has always been a delight. Um, Scott, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thanks for letting and me talk so much. No problem. <laughs> it's always good to hear you talk, buddy. So uh, for Scott Pollard and uh, you know the podcast, follow your dreams, fuckos. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. All right. We love you. Bye-bye. Bye. The shift was brought to you by Alex Rice. Produced by Patrick Murray. Engineered by Patrick Murray. All the music made by Patrick Murray. If you liked us, then hit the subscribe. Follow us everywhere we go live. Oh, yeah.